0: Mysterious sounds, lights that have no source, tragic events happening in the same place, or just that strange feeling that someone is watching you. Even though we live in the 21st century, we all know them. And it doesn't matter where we live, our country has plenty of stories about mythical creatures that drowned sheep or steal children who wanted to find the forest. Being human, we always try to explain what happened. Even if it is caused by a scary demon, at least you know about it and can be prepared. The unknown is much scarier. In Japan, as elsewhere, supernatural creatures have been part of the cultural imagination for as long as history has been recorded. And all these various mysterious phenomena and strange things have come to be called Yokai. So, welcome to Japan Explained. And today we are going to dive into the mysterious world of Yokai. When I first learned about yokai a long time ago, they were mostly Tanuki, Nuke-kubi, Yuki-onna and other strange creatures with superpowers. Not surprisingly, as these are the creatures Lafcadio Hearn wrote about, and we'll get to that later. But when I started preparing for this episode, I was surprised to find that most of my favorites are fairly recent additions to the yokai universe. Yet it seemed that Oni, Tengu, Yamauba and other not-so-fascinating yokai have been around at least since the first written texts. And it makes sense. In ancient times, people were afraid of water, the forest, thunder and lightning. The great and powerful nature that they couldn't control. And the oldest yokai remind us of that. Before we get into the story, Let's get our terminology straight Speaking of Japanese mythical creatures You've probably heard of Kami, Yurei, Yōkai, Bakemono, Obake and Mononoke And there is a lot of overlap between them Kami are probably the easiest to separate So let's start with them Kami are Japanese deities So the key here is that they are worshipped and, in some cases, yokai can become kami. Why not? Without looking too far, Kyoto has a small shrine dedicated to Nue and a slightly larger one built to appease a misbehaving tanuki. As Michael Dylan Foster explains in his book of yokai, it's important to remember that individual kami may be powerful, but not necessarily good in a moral sense. In fact, some kami are known for their short tempers and violence. Next come yurei, Japanese ghosts. And I wish I could say they were just that. Writing in 1936, yokai researcher Yanagita Kunio points out the distinctions of place, victim and time. Yokai, he explains, generally appeared in certain places, If you avoided these particular places, you could live your whole life without ever meeting one. He also pointed out that yokai did not choose their victims, but rather targeted the ordinary masses. Yurei, on the other hand, only targeted the person they were after and would follow you wherever you went. Finally, yokai could appear at any time of the day or night, but preferred the dim light of dusk or dawn. Yurei only appeared at the time of Ushimitsu, the third quarter of an hour of ox, around 2 thirty in the morning, when the night was at its darkest. And while I love this theory, many scholars have challenged it, finding exceptions and pointing out that in most cases a yurei is associated with a deceased person. In recent years, the tendency supported by leading researchers has been to regard yurei as a subcategory of yokai, just as humans are a subcategory of animals. And now we come to bakemono, obake, mononoke and yokai. While today yokai has become an umbrella term for all sorts of mysterious phenomena and strange creatures, you might be surprised to learn that for a long time these was an academic jargon. According to Komatsu Kazuhiko, the term itself is made up of two Chinese characters, both of which denote strangeness, mystery and suspicion. The word has its roots in China, but appears in Japan as early as the 8th century mythic historical text Nihongi, which states that a purification ceremony was held at the imperial court because of a yokai. Presumably a strange or unfortunate event of some kind. The word began to appear with increasing frequency in the mid-Edo period, but it didn't become common until the publications of Inoue Enryo, the first scholar to seriously study the subject in modern times. Until then, the word hadn't been used much by the general public. People preferred to say bakemono. In the past, bakemono, literally, changing things, referred only to creatures with the mysterious ability to shapeshift, such as foxes that turned into humans. But during the Edo period the word bakemono came to include creatures without this ability, and sometimes even yurei. With mononoke being an ancient term for paranormal beings and obake being a childish way of calling all things spooky, we can say that all mononoke, bakemono and obake are yokai. But not all yokai are bakemono, as yokai is not necessarily a creature, but can be, for example, an event. Now that we have some clarity on what yokai are, let's look at people's relationship with them in different historical periods. It's... Hard to say what scary creatures roamed the Japanese Isles before Buddhism arrived in the 6th century. Buddhist sculpture changed it all. It gave faces not only to Buddha, Bodhisattvas and heavenly gains, but to all sorts of creatures. Good and bad. Around the same time, the Chinese writing system was adopted. And by the beginning of the 8th century, we have Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, I hope you don't get tired of me mentioning them in every episode. The word yokai doesn't appear in any of them, but that doesn't mean we don't have mythical creatures to talk about. One of the most famous stories described there is a classic hero rescuing a princess from a dragon tale. Susanoo no Mikoto, the mischievous younger brother of the sun Godes Amaterasu, defeating Yamata no Orochi. As the story goes, Susanoo meets an old couple who are desperate because every year an eight-tailed dragon, known as Yamata no Orochi, comes and devours one of their daughters. Its eyes are like red ground cherries, explains the father. Its one body has eight heads and eight tails. On his body grow moss and cypress and cryptomeria trees. Its length is such that it spans eight valleys and eight mountain peaks. If you look at its belly, you will see blood oozing all over it. In exchange for the hand of the last remaining daughter, Susano offers to defeat the monster. Make eight doors in a fence, he tells the old couple. At each door tie together eight platforms, and on each of these platforms place a wine barrel fill each barrel with the thick wine of eightfold bruins, and wait. Eventually, the huge serpent appears, and putting one head into each of the barrels, drinks until drunk, then falls asleep, giving Susanoo enough time to chop him into pieces. In the process, Susanoo breaks his sword, but finds another one in the dragon's tail. This is the Kusanagi, a legendary weapon and one of the three sacred imperial regalia of Japan. The hero then marries the princess and they live happily ever after. Or something like that. What's important is that Susanoo's deed sets an example of yokai taiji. A traditional story in which a hero manages to defeat or kill a dangerous yokai. Along with kojiki and nihonshoki, some of the earliest Japanese texts are fudoki. Original gazetteers that contained all sorts of records, including local legends, myths, rituals and beliefs. An interesting example is found in Hizen no Kuni Fudoki, which refers to a creature called Tsuchigumo, an earth spider. But while it sounds like a creature, Tsuchigumo was actually a derogatory term used at the time to refer to local people who didn't want to be ruled by the Yamato clan. It didn't help that they often build their homes in caves and mounds. But wait a little and Suchigumo will turn into a very real, very vicious yokai. Apart from Yamata no Orochi and Suchigumo, most of the strange events of the time were attributed to oni, or demons. They were fearsome presences, sometimes invisible, sometimes one-eyed, Sometimes taking all sorts of terrifying forms as they hadn't yet acquired their classic image. In Izumo no Kunifudoki, Oni ate a farmer, while the chapter of the Nihonshoki tells of an Oni that pillaged the island of Sado. So, since the Nara period, rituals called Tsuina have been performed to drive Oni away. And as Hirota Ritsuko explains in the book Oni no Kitamichi, These are imported Chinese ritual ceremonies, held to drive away malicious influences. Some participants in the ceremony would put on oni masks, while exorcists or Buddhist deities such as Vishamon 10 or Kanon drove them out. Sounds very similar to modern setsubun festivities. Throughout the Heian period, Oni continued to be the standard term for any kind of evil and threatening creature. And with a vengeful spirit forcing the emperor to leave the previous capital within 10 years of moving in, the city of Heian itself was built to minimize the damage caused by Oni. Four sacred Chinese animals protected it from four directions and the so-called Kimon the demon gates to the northeast was fortified with numerous temples and shrines where live monkeys were kept or carvings of monkeys were abundant as the Japanese word for monkey, Saru, also means to live and the demons were to understand that they were not welcome. Sometimes, however, they managed to find their way into the capital of peace and tranquility. Such gatherings of oni became known as Hekiyago, night processions of a hundred demons. And Onmoryo, the Bureau of Divination, would issue warnings for people to avoid them. Nevertheless, some people choose to travel despite the danger. Okagami, written in 1100s, tells the story of a nobleman called Morosuke, who encountered Hekiyago while traveling through the capital. He ordered his servants to stop the carriage and lower the blinds, while he chanted a protective spell. The danger then passes and Moroska continues his journey. As Michael Dylan Forster notes, it seems the demons are only dangerous to the nobleman here, while his servants can't even see them. An early 13th century book Tales from Uji suggests that a person caught in such a crossroads between the human and demonic worlds could even be moved in space, as happened to a monk traveling in the Setsu province near Osaka. While he survived the encounter with demons thanks to the protection of the Buddhist deity Fudo the next morning he found himself in Hizen, or somewhere around modern-day Nagasaki, hundreds of miles away from his original location. Now it's time for a new dose of Chinese influence. In the 10th century, an ancient Chinese text called Sangaikyo guideways from mountains and seas reached Japan. It was a kind of geographical atlas with descriptions of strange places and their unusual inhabitants. And while Sangaikyo didn't pay much attention to each individual yokai, it was enough to leave a lasting influence on early japanese texts and picture scrolls and the later ones were just gaining momentum the ladies of the imperial court loved picture scrolls illustrating all kinds of stories the best of all was the tale of genji where we meet mononoke spooky and mysterious things that look out there to do you harm you to predict prevent and reverse this harm the capital had previously mentioned on Mioro, the Bureau of Divination. Technically, this bureau was divided into four sections, each with its own specialty: Divination, calendars, astronomy and meteorology, and time management and scheduling. In practice, these were all interrelated, and the Bureau provided a range of services, including interpreting the dreams of court nobility, performing purification ceremonies, exercising spirits, calculating auspicious dates, or determining which nights the Hekiyagyo were out. The people who worked in the Bureau were called Onmyoji, practitioners of Onmyodo. In simple terms, a mixture of Chinese and And five element philosophies. And the most famous of these was Abenoseime, a real historical figure who lived from 921 to 105. A bureaucrat who performed a variety of services for the court and whose greatest achievement seems to have been living to the ripe old age of 84. Which is impressive indeed. But boring reality aside, Abenoseime is the most powerful Japanese sorcerer of all time, and a great character to read about. For example, it is said that his father, Abuno Yasuna, saved the life of a fox who returned the favor by turning into a beautiful woman. So Seimei was half human, half yokai, with deep insight into both worlds. What makes it even more interesting is that Seimei's life overlapped with that of Minamoto no Yorimitsu, commonly known as Raikō. Raikō was also a real person, a member of the Seiwa Genji branch of the Minamoto family. But just like Seimei, he is mainly remembered for his talent in dealing with yokai. The two complement each other quite well, as we have a classic universal pairing of a wizard and a warrior with Seimei, being the wizard's brain and Raiko the warrior with a sword one legend has it that they actually worked together to defeat a terrifying giant oni called Shuten-dōji and if you haven't heard the story yet here it comes sometimes in the late 10th or early 11th century the capital was shaken by a wave of abductions thought to be the work of a band of demons One day, when they kidnapped the daughter of an important government official, the imperial court decided it had had enough. Abenosemey was summoned to divine, and he discovered that the demons were hiding the kidnapped ladies in their home on Mount Oe, on the outskirts of the Heian capital. The next thing we know, the emperor orders Raiko to defeat the demons. Raiko and his men pray to various Buddhist deities and then, disguised as mountain aesthetics Yamabushi, head into the hills in search of the Oni's hideout. Along the way, they meet three old men who explain that the leading Oni, Shuten Doji, is particularly fond of alcohol. They give Raiko a container of magical sake that is poisonous to Oni but beneficial to humans. And after pointing the warriors in the direction of the Oni's lair, the men vanish into the air. As it later turns out, these men are incarnations of the very gods Raiko and his men had prayed to before leaving home. Next, the warriors meet a woman who tells them more about shuten He has a human appearance during the day, but at night he transforms into a ten-foot-tall demon whose countenance is truly terrifying. He always drinks sake, and once he gets drunk, he forgets everything. She tells them. Finally, the warriors reach the palace where the oni live. The Yamabushi outfits prove very useful in convincing the demons that the visitors pose no threat, and Raiko and his men end up eating and drinking with Shuten Doji and his henchmen, sharing the magic liquor until all the Oni get drunk and pass out. With the help of three deities who reappear just when they are needed, Raiko cuts off shooting Doji's head, which continues to attack and bite even after being separated from its body. The warriors then kill all other Oni, and searching the palace afterwards, the men discover a scene of horror. Skeletons, pickled human flesh, And a woman with her limbs severed, but still alive. Raikou and his men then lead all the kidnapped women to safety and reunite them with their families in the capital, where Raikou himself is hailed as hero. Again, as Michael Dillon Forster notes in the Book of Yokai, Doji and his fellow Oni are certainly vicious and unpleasant, but they can also be read in more sympathetic light. After all, they are somewhat hospitable and good-natured when banqueting with the warriors, they fight honorably and well, and they ultimately fall victim to the warriors' deception. Indeed, as Shuten Doji himself exclaims before his head is cut off, how sad you priests! You said you did not lie! There is nothing false in the words of demons. And it's hard to argue with Forster's suggestion that the oni in this story are not necessarily bad, just very different from humans, and driven into an isolated existence because of their otherness. We'll see this over and over again as we look at various yokai. And if you ask me, that's probably the most defining characteristic of Japanese monsters. They're not just good or evil, but very human in character. They can help or hurt, they can grieve or rejoice. But at the same time, they're a little too creepy to be a part of normal society. Without going too far to prove my point, the same Raiko is also a hero of Tsuchigumo Zoshi. As the story goes, Raiko and his retainer Watanabe no Tsuna stumble upon an old house where they encounter all sorts of yokai. The final boss of their conquest is a giant spider. When Raikou decapitates it and cuts open its belly, 1,990 skulls of its victims roll out and are carefully counted by the Bureau of Statistics. (laughs) Sorry, I just couldn't resist. But remember, just a few minutes ago, I was telling you about the Tsuchigumo of Uduaki, a derogatory term for the indigenous people of Japan. A few centuries later, they completed their transformation and became an actual yokai. The 14th century scrolls depict Tsuchigumo as a giant but very zoologically realistic spider that no longer has any connection with the indigenous people. Now, wait, we're at a period and Tsuchigumo will once again represent humans. But we are still in the Heian period, and that means we have to talk about Setsuwa. While it literally means spoken story, and is described by Wikipedia as the vaguest form of literature, Setsuwa were short oral narratives, a sort of Japanese fairy tale, much of which was religious or mystical. So, lots of spooky stories out there. And in the Heian period, people started to organize them into collections. Although there are many Setsuo collections, the most famous are the 9th century Nihon Ryōiki, the 11th century Konjaku Monogatari, and the aforementioned 13th century Tales of Uji. And here we meet our next yokai – Tengu. During the Heian period, Tengu were believed to be mysterious forces that lived in the mountains. They were spirits that caused strange sounds in the forest. For example, the sound of a falling tree late at night is sometimes called Tengu Daoshi, Tengu Fellin. While Tengu Arai, Tengu's laughter, is a name for what sounds like inexplicable laughter heard deep in the mountains. The phenomenon of Kamikakushi was also explained in this way. When children disappeared, Tengu were to blame. And while Tengu were considered amorphous, they would occasionally take the form of a bird or a monk. But it wasn't until the late Heian and early Kamakura periods, the late 12th and early 13th centuries, that their image really began to take shape. Both Konjaku Monogatari and Tales from Uji were collections of mainly religious stories. So the monsters in those stories were usually trying to harm priests or prevent the spread of religion. And Tengu evolved to play the part. The bird of prey, known in English as kite, was thought to be their original form, but they could take on many different guises. They were described as living in the mountains, flying freely through the air in search of humans to kidnap and devour. They were also believed to possess people and spread disease and death. It was also believed that monks who strayed from the path would fall into the Buddhist animal realm and become Tengu themselves. Such Tengu could then possess other people. And then, strangely enough, Tengu got their funds. Since they could curse, they could be asked to curse, And so Mount Atago, to the northwest of Kyoto, soon became the epicenter of Tengu beliefs. Another interesting point is the relationship between Tengu and Yamabushi mountain aesthetics. As they spent all their time training in the mountains, it was believed that Yamabushi had some powers to exercise and control Tengu. Perhaps this will help you to understand why Raiko and his men were allowed into the demon palace by Shutandoji. They were the boss of a calling type of visitor. Not very welcome, but hard to refuse. As we enter the Middle Ages, however, things are changing dramatically in Japan. The Genpei war had just ended and the powerful Minamoto clan had established its capital in Kamakura with two capitals and two courts with very different tastes to please the art form of picture scrolls entered its golden age and that's when we start to see lots and lots of yokai pictures after all it was warriors who killed those nasty demons so now we see what should doji or a spider killed by raiko look like we see the beautiful yet terrifying chimera nue all heroes Conveniently coming from the Minamoto clan. But then, in the mid 14th century, the Kamakura period gave way to the Muromachi period. Kyoto is once again the sole capital of Japan, and art continues to flourish. And it's time for another look at the Hekiyago demon procession. And surprise everyone wants to paint one now! So Hyakkiyagyo Emaki is becoming a genre in itself. Suddenly, the terrifying demon procession becomes more understandable and therefore less scary and soon even funny. The oldest known of these scrolls, believed to be by Tosa Mitsunobu, looks like a chaotic display of strange creatures that ends with an appearance of a gigantic red fireball, presumably the sun. It causes yokai to scatter Notably, the creatures we see on this scroll don't always look like oni Many of them are in fact household items and other everyday objects only now they have arms, legs and faces with somewhat grim expressions Such yokai-fied everyday objects are called Tsukumogami Since the Muromachi period, if not earlier, there seemed to have been a belief that objects that have not been treated with respect or had been disposed of improperly would become animated and take revenge on the people who had mistreated them. An illustrated story called the Tsukumogamiki explains that when an object reaches 100 years of age, it transforms, acquires a spirit and deceives people's hearts. This is called Tsukumogami. The story on the scroll goes as follows. Having been thrown away by the side of the road by their owners without a single word of gratitude for their hard work, the household items became angry and decided to take revenge. Although they were not yet a hundred years old, the spirit of an old scroll told them how to transform into oni. They began the transformation, but were defeated before they could complete it. In the end, they understood their wrongdoing, embraced Buddhism, and finally rested in peace. And while the age of 100 is just a pretty number here, the idea that an inanimate object has a spirit reflects Shinto beliefs. Complemented by the Buddhist perspective that any spirit, eventually be transformed into a buddha making tsukumogami truly unique to japan with the introduction of tsukumogami we see a rapid increase in the number of yokai whereas in ancient and even heian times the only yokai-like creatures were oni and tengu a trickster kitsune foxes straight out of chinese folklore and now almost forgotten but most real of all the giant serpents, Daija. In the Middle Ages, picture scrolls began to depict creatures that were difficult to identify as oni, humans or animals. Perhaps the clue lies in the fact that in the second half of the Muromachi period, as the Middle Ages drew to a close, the audience for illustrated stories expanded from the aristocracy to include commoners as well. Many scrolls were creating depicting legends and tales of the common people, including stories of confronting and defeating yokai. A new literary genre known as otogizoshi, or companion books, flourished. They came in a variety of formats, but on the whole, they were relatively short, entertaining stories, often accompanied by illustrations. There were stories about people from all walks of life, religious tales, animal stories, travel adventures and tales about various yokai. And they remained popular until the late 17th century, which brings us to the Edo period. But this is a topic for the next episode. Join me next time to find out how yokai numbers skyrocketed during the Edo period how the DIY hobby of Japanese fishermen made a big splash in London and New York, and how yokai are surviving in a highly skeptical modern society. Stay tuned and talk to you next time. Bye!